This is an ABC podcast. There are three kingdoms in this world. There is the kingdom of the animals, of the plants, and a third kingdom that's largely invisible to us, the kingdom of the fungi. Dr Alison Puglio is an ecologist. She specialises in the secret world of fungi. She's also an amazing photographer who's captured that world in all its alien splendour and strangeness. Alison has pictures of tiny mushrooms that look like they're made of blue glass. There are other species of fungi that look like the pages of an old book that's been left out in the rain. There are those that grow out of the side of a tree, like a monstrous head. And there are ghost mushrooms that shimmer faintly in the dark. Fungi have given us life-saving penicillin, not to mention all those delicious mushrooms and truffles and the hallucinogenic psilocybin, or magic mushrooms as they're commonly called. Some of them are very toxic to us, some give us annoying infections, and some species are parasitic and can assume control of the body of an ant. But Alison is here to remind us that, by and large, the fungus is more of a lover, not a fighter. And its most interesting work takes place underground where fungi work symbiotically with trees and plants in an intertwined relationship that's strangely intimate. Alison's written a wonderful new book on the secret life of fungi, and it's called Underground Lovers. Hello, Alison. Hello, Richard. I really enjoyed this book because, first of all, I realised that everything I thought I knew about mushrooms was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing is the Third Kingdom. When was that decided? I, I don't remember that being taught to me in school in the 80s, Alison. Well, you're absolutely right. Everything was either an animal or a plant, but fungi, they contravened the conditions of both kingdoms. It was actually back in the 60s that they got their own kingdom, but that's still quite a while ago, the 60s, and yet it's very much been the forgotten kingdom, the forgotten kingdom of fungi until quite recently. I think I would have naturally have lumped them in with plants. Why are they not plants, Alison? Well, you and Carl Linnaeus, you might know the Swedish biologist who also lumped them into the plant kingdom, but fungi don't get their food in the way that plants do. They don't have chlorophyll, they don't photosynthesise, they don't use the sun to get their energy. But in fact, they get their nutrition in a way that's not that dissimilar to us through enzyme secretion. So when we want to get some nutrition, we put food into our mouths, it goes into our digestive tract, enzymes then break down that food and we extract what we need. Fungi do exactly the same thing, but they do it externally. So they don't have a digestive tract. They pretty much just sit in organic matter in their food source, source and they slobber. They, they release slobber. Their enzymes. <laughs> they release those enzymes directly into the environment and then they absorb what they need. So we call them heterotrophs rather than autotrophs, which are plants. So they're actually getting their nutrition in a similar way to us. So in that sense, they're more like animals and plants. But there's another reason too why they're more like animals. And that is the basic building blocks of plants are things called cellulose and lignin. That's what gives wood its hardness. But fungi are made of something called chitin. And chitin is also found in the animal kingdom. What is chitin, by the way? So chitin is a very, very hard substrate that, for example, think of something like the the shell on a crayfish or other crustaceans or the outer covering on insects, what we call the exoskeleton or other arthropods. Think of a scorpion or a centipede or a millipede and that very hard casing, that's made of something called chitin as well. So this basic building block is shared between fungi and animals, whereas plants are made of something altogether different, the cellulose and lignin. So very different organisms altogether. Yeah, that that chitin sounds like a hard carapace, but fungi is often spongy to the touch, isn't it? It is. It is spongy. The actual fungus mice that's the bit underground, not the actual mushroom we see pop up above the, the surface. That's when we become aware of fungi. But the fungus organism itself, that's, I mean, it's all made of chitin. That's the basic building block. And although it feels very soft to touch, try digesting chitin. It's actually pretty hard to digest. Our bodies can't break that down very well. We have an, an enzyme called chitinase that breaks it down. But for many of us, it's not particularly effective. Have you ever had a meal of three or four large portobello mushrooms? And even though they're perfectly edible... Afterwards, you might feel slightly heavy or a little bit of indigestion. That's that chitin that we can't actually break down because it's very, very hard. 
does it make them architectural? Because I kind of notice often in, you know, in fantasy literature, like Alice in Wonderland and in a lot of, you know, children's books, you often see a lot of toadstools and mushrooms on the surface. And one of the reasons why I think they serve in fiction like that all the time is because you can sit on them, you can make a house from them. <laughs> a big, is it the, the chitin that makes them so sort of robust and architectural, if you like? Well, I hadn't thought of it in that way, but certainly, I mean, metaphorically there, but also literally, we're now actually 3D printing the mycelium and growing mycelium in moulds to produce packaging and all sorts of building products as well. So certainly they do have that robustness, the, the mycelium itself, to produce this incredible, for example, something called Milo, that's M-Y-L-O, or vegan leather to produce clothing instead of using animal products. So certainly they're being used in this whole range of things because they do have such strength and such hardness. I heard you on a panel discussion at Wom Adelaide on the science show where people, not yourself, but other people were talking about uh, fungi being used as bricks to create bricks. Have I got that right, to create You're architectural abs- bricks? Absolutely. You're absolutely spot on. And pretty much what they do is they say they just create a mould and by that I mean they'll have a box or something, they'll fill it with agricultural waste and then they'll infiltrate that waste with the fungus mycelium. So that that waste forms a food source for the fungus. The fungus consumes it, eats it, fills up the box, and then they superheat it basically to kill the organism. And they've got this very, very dense, very hard brick or other form or shape, whatever they're producing. So it's just astonishing how fungi are being used in biotechnology now. And, you know, years and years ago, when I was running a foray or a workshop or something like that, there was pretty much two groups of people who came along. There was your field naturalists, who would come along to talk about the species they'd seen and and field naturalists have given us so much knowledge about what fungi are out there in the environment. And then the other group were the foragers, those who wanted to know which fungi were edible and the toxic lookalike species or the doppelganger as we call them. But these days, there's not just these two groups of people. For example, I get bioengineers who do come along who are producing bricks or other materials. I had a dancer who came along who wanted to choreograph a new dance piece based on the what we call the wood wide web or this underground network of fungi. <laughs> and then I had one chap who came along and I asked him, what are you doing here? And he said, actually... The mushroom has told me to come along. <laughs> but the best one was a woman who came and she was incredibly serious. Like she was there with her little notepad recording the species. I'd put on a big table of specimens and she's noting them down and photographing them with her phone. And then she said, I said, what brings you along? She said, I'm a crime fiction writer and I'm looking for a fungus that will cure a philandering husband. <laughs> so there's all these new entry points to, to get interested in this kingdom, I think, now, Richard. I wonder what she thinks that cure might do, like yeah. not make him want to stray so much or, or exactly. neuter, neuter him or make his genitals wither and die. Oh, I, I didn't ask those details, but, <laughs> but and, I don't think it was too kind. <laughs> and, and, and to be clear, you're not aware of any such fungus exist, existing in the world, are you? Well, there's certainly some fungi that will stop you going anywhere, not just philandering, but like, <laughs> it will make, stop you in your tracks. Right, make you drop dead, in other words. That's yes. an extreme solution, perhaps, to the problem there. <laughs> now, being a fungi person, this would mean you're always needing to be in some part of the world where it's a wet autumn. Is that about right? Are you forever travelling to autumn around the world? I am. I do track autumns across hemispheres. So I spend the autumn here in Australia or very late summer sometimes and just into early winter. And then as that soil temperature drops down, the fungi pretty much hunker down for the winter. And, you know, mostly it's in autumn when we see the mushrooms pop up. Some will pop up all year, but the great majority, it's at this time of year in autumn as the soil temperature starts to drop down and the moisture level increases. But once they disappear for the winter, I switch hemispheres, get myself a double dose of fungi and get to see all those wonderful fungi in the northern hemisphere. So it's a great way to extend the amount of time that I can actually observe them and, and spend time with them. When you're in a forest... And, and you press your thumb against the bark of a tree and you feel it feeling kind of spongy. Does that tell you that there's fungi somewhere all, all within that tree? That's precisely what it's telling us. And it's the fungi that break down those recalcitrant compounds like the lignin and the cellulose I mentioned earlier that give the wood the hardness. I mean, lots of things break down wood, little invertebrates, little insects and things bite into it and break it down mechanically. Bacteria is also involved, but it's the fungi, only the fungi that can break down the lignin. And sometimes even when we can't see the mushrooms themselves, we're not aware of where the fungi are, you still see clues as to their presence. In the same way, for example, that if we were 
out looking for birds. We might not spot a bird, but perhaps we'll see a nest or we'll see an eggshell or we'll see the, the peckings or something of where a bird has been. It's the same with fungi. And whenever you can push your thumb into a bark and it gives and goes what goes through the wood itself, that's when you realise there's actually fungi here within the wood. Even if we can't see the mushrooms, that's how we know the fungi are in there. You talk about the pleasure you have of putting your hands into the leaf litter on the floor of a forest and digging in and bringing, bringing up what's there and fossicking through it to see what you can find. I'm really struck by that because I think we do that a lot as kids, but not many adults do that anymore, do we? <laughs> we don't like to get our hands dirty no. as much as we get and, older. And, and, and we miss thing, out. We miss out, I think, don't we, as a result when we do that? I think so too. And it's just so evocative. I mean, the smell of leaf litter, and it's a bit of an unfortunate name, leaf litter. I wish there was a more endearing name, but it is just so full of different odours and scents and textures. It's incredibly rich or biodiverse habitat for so many creatures and all the different processes that go on that release all these amazing scents and odours. And I think there's probably few people who don't enjoy that scent of, you know, walking through a forest after rain or early in the morning when everything's moist and misty. I think it's that whole, for me, that whole multi-sensory experience of feeling it, of smelling it, even tasting it. And yeah, I guess, you know, a lot of scientific research these days is done in the lab. A lot of mycology or the scientific study of fungi is molecular. We're looking at gene sequences. But for me to have that very analogue approach of being out there literally rolling around in the dirt with the fungi and, <laughs> and all those amazing scents. That's something I've been really drawn to. I think most of us think of the mushroom when we think of a fungus, a typical fungus, the umbrella-shaped mushrooms that we sometimes see in the lawn or in a forest and or in the supermarket indeed. That's just one form of fungus that pops up above the parapet wall, if you like, above, above the soil. What other forms does uh, a fungus take once it pokes up from from the ground like that. Oh, there's just such myriad different forms. And in the same way, if you think, say, of the different forms of flowers, we've got very large, showy, dramatic flowers that, re you know, release incredible scents. Then we've got finer, delicate ones, all sorts of patterns and colours and things. And fungi are the same. And the whole idea of that mushroom or the reproductive structure that holds the spores, sometimes we call that, sometimes it's called a fruit body or a fruiting body. I like to give it its proper name, which is a sporing body or sporophore, because technically it's not a plant. It's, it's not producing fruit, but that those sporing bodies manifest in different forms pretty much for one purpose, and that is to maximise the chance of releasing and dispersing their spores. So as you said, we're all very familiar with the umbrella-shaped mushroom, but you'll see them come up as these amazing coralline structures, just like marine corals under the sea and also in a range of different colours. And then others will appear as this crazy lattice ball, and then some will come up like a club or a hand coming out of the soil. And then, of course, everyone's familiar with the puff balls, these large balls that are just packed with spores. And then there's the bracket fungi that appear like pikelets that are stuck on the side of a tree. Mm. And so there's all these incredible different forms. And for me, that's one of the great thrills of taking people out into the forest. And they've got an eye often for mushrooms. Most people know what an umbrella-shaped mushroom looks like. But then they see this gelatinous blob on a log, not realising that that also is a fungus. So to expand people's ideas of what these reproductive structures look like. That's part of the real delight for me to see this, you know, new understanding and new knowledge about, wow, that weirdo thing over there, that's also a type of fungus. There's a lovely story in your book about how you went into a forest on the Swiss-French border and in the middle of the forest you found this puffball fungus on the surface that was not an uninhabited puffball. <laughs> Tell me what you saw in that puffball, please. Oh, look, I think it's just amazing, Richard. Once you sit down on the forest floor, once you're still, you suddenly become so aware of how dynamic and how alive it is that it's not just this empty space or this space of, you know, of course it's quiet, but it's absolutely teeming with life. And here was this puffball. It's called a studded puffball because it has these tiny little jeweled, there's like a jeweled surface. It's got this little tiny, what would I call them, like little tiny pimples on the surface. And it had some holes in this puffball. So of course I'm lying there on my stomach and I peer into this hole. And there within this hole was a slug. And then there's this series of chambers through this 
puffball, and there was in each chamber was another slug. It was thought, a, sl- a little slug house, was it? Yeah, it was. And it's this tiny puffball that probably only exists for a few days of the year before it collapses or indeed gets eaten by the slugs. But I was quite fascinated how this was the most beautiful home of these sleeping slugs. And I thought this could be a great opportunity to get some video footage of what they actually do if they do anything within this slug. And so I set up my camera on time-lapse, hoping to get some footage of what these slugs might do. But what I noticed pretty quickly is that they all appeared to be sleeping. <laughs> they weren't okay. doing much at all. So I put it on time-lapse and I I wandered off for an hour. And I, I do this very often, Richard. I take off through the forest and I'm always hoping I'm going to actually remember where I left the camera. Half the time I spend the time wandering around, not looking for fungi, but looking for my camera where I've left it. But fortunately, I found it an hour later and then I looked and guess what? They'd all disappeared. All the slugs had disappeared. So I played back the footage and I couldn't believe it. It wasn't just the slugs departing this puffball. So many different creatures had visited. There was a ladybird that came flying in. There was mites, little tiny red mites crawling all over it. There was this hairy snail that kind of tracked the slugs. Other slugs came and departed. There must have been about 10 or 15 different species of creatures that in that hour I wandered off. They all came, visited the puffball. Some were looking for food, some were looking for shelter, some were using it as a landing patch. And I thought, well, how often do we do that as adults? As you say, we don't tend to, to pick up. The, the dirt or put our hands in the soil, but also to observe something closely over time. And I guess, you know, spending time on the forest for having the benefit of a camera or having, particularly when you can do video footage, it's just such, you, you, things are revealed that you don't see from sitting there for just a minute or two. So mm. I was, every time I'm astonished what I see when I spend that time or, or do, you know, produce that footage. All that drama going on within a couple of hours in the puffball fungus mushroom. It is mushroom. drama. You're right. There's like drama on the puffball stage. It really is. And, and you wouldn't and know so it. many different creatures. And you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know what was going on unless you got lay down on your belly and looked at this <laughs> tiny little thing that's growing out of the floor. Astonishing. I mean, yeah, and I'm blown away. And that's also why I love seeing kids in the forest. I mean, maybe you know, they are closer to the ground, but they do notice these things. They really draw our attention to them. What do we know about the origins of fungi on earth. Do we know if if they came out of the sea? Did they arrive before plants or after plants and animals? What do we know about this? Ideas about their origins are constantly changing as we learn more about them. I mean, fungi, they don't fossilise well. They don't have bones like like vertebrates that fossilise well. So we don't have much of a a fossil fungus record. We have some that have been preserved in amber and things like that, but it's very hard to track their origins. But what we do know is they at least date back to the Devonian period. So that's about 500 plus million years ago. So they are very old organisms. And we think the oldest of all the fungi are a group known as the lichens. And even though people often think of lichens as plants because many of them are green and they grow on trees and rocks and things, we often think they're plants, they are in fact fungi. They're in fact a symbiosis or a union or an alliance of two main different organisms, so a fungus and an alga. Sometimes it's a a menage a trois. There are yeasts and other organisms in there as well. So it's actually not one organism but a colony or So are you saying lichen is not one thing? It's two things. It's a symbiosis or an alliance. So every lichen actually is a particularly an alga, so you think of things like algae or slime as sometimes it's called, and fungus cells intertwined. And the benefit of intertwining and being two organisms in one is you can tap into each other's talents. And this is why we think lichens have been so successful because they what one couldn't do, the other one could. You've got two ways of getting nutrition. You've got two organisms working together. And you've got these algal cells and fungus cells doing different things. They've got much more potential capacity, for example, to withstand extremes. In fact, sometimes they're called extremophiles or lovers of the extremes. And think about, I'm sure you've been somewhere like Wilson's Promontory or perhaps down to Wineglass Bay in Tasmania. Think of those big granitic, those big granite boulders you see there down at Tidal River at Wilson's Prom. And they're covered, have you noticed they're orange? And they're covered in this lichen called Calaplaca. And if you think about living on a boulder there on Tidal River, it is such an extreme environment because you're constantly exposed to sand-laden, abrasive winds. You're in the splash zone, so you've got salt water splashing against you. You've got the guano or the droppings of seabirds. It's a very harsh and demanding environment to live in. But lichens can tolerate those extremes. And we think that lichens back during the Devonian when the, the real estate in the ocean 
evolution was getting pretty busy, like we, things were speciating or there was evolution of more and more species, we think some algal cells that came out of the sea and actually formed the relationship with fungus cells on the land possibly formed the first lichens that secreted enzymes and also mechanically broke down those primeval rocks that created the very first soils that allowed things such as very, very ancient organisms such as things like club mosses and horsetails and liverworts, those things to get a bit of a root hold. And then we saw the succession of plants after that. So ideas are changing as new discoveries come to light, but we think lichens are perhaps the oldest of the fungi and it at least goes back to the Devonian, possibly even older. I've had the great pleasure and privilege of travelling to Iceland twice in my life for reasonably long periods of time, and uh, I know you've been there as well. And it's a place that's quite inhospitable to most life on this planet, including humans in quite a few places there. There's, there's almost no trees there. There are There's, there's tiny little copses of, of little small saplings that they call forest, and there's a, a, there's a joke in Iceland, which I'm sure you heard, which is, how do you find your way out of an Icelandic forest? You stand up, is what they say. You know, that's, that's the joke that goes around in Iceland. But you see lichen and moss everywhere in Iceland, out in these most brutal climates in Iceland. Lichen growing on boulders there. That's, as you say, they seem to be extremophiles, able to live in extreme conditions. Tell me what lichen is able to do to a rock or a boulder if it sits there long enough. Well, basically, they, they break them down. I mean, fungi and lichens particularly, they are the great decomposers or recyclers of not just organic matter, but also rock. So lichens particularly are breaking down rock. We call this process pedogenesis or the formation of soil, but it doesn't happen overnight. It's a yeah. very how long does, How does lichen process. break, shatter a rock? So they actually do it two ways. So it's both physical and chemical. And we call this weathering or they actually etch into the rocks. I mean, it's a, it's a very slow process. They, lichens have over 200 different types of chemicals and some of them, things are very, very powerful acids, for example. So those acids are breaking, breaking down different components of the rock, but it's actually also physical. So they're often in these tiny fissures in the rock, they're expanding and over time they actually physically push that rock apart and break down the different components of the rock. It's a very hard thing to see and document because of that time scale over which it happens. It happens over thousands of, or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. But as those glaciers recede in Iceland and elsewhere in the world, and you've got that bare rock exposed as the glacier pulls back, That's the, the lichens are often the very, very first colonisers in that process of succession. They're the first ones to claim that bare terrain. So they're very important, in, not just in breaking down that rock, but setting off that successional process that allows other life forms to move in and colonise. For example, other invertebrates or insects blow in on webs or they just get blown in off course and they land in among the lichens and find a, a spare space. You were talking about a micro scale here to actually set up home. So What, into see... tiny etchings in the rock you're saying, are you? Yeah, so we're talking to tiniest creatures, spiderlings and mites and very, very, very small organisms and when you get a tiny bit of accumulation of organic matter, a tiny bit of soil starts to form, it offers an opportunity for a seed, perhaps a bird flies over and deposits a seed and if that seed's got a tiny crevice with a tiny bit of nutrition and a bit of protection, it has the chance to germinate. But this happens both spatially and temporally, like on spatial scales and temporal scales, it's happening very slowly over a long period of time and at a scale that we don't always detect. As you say, it's pretty punishing climate over there. <laughs> you don't last long lying on the rock observing these things. There's something really poetic though about the idea of lichen over many centuries oh, breaking there? a rock down, what, into soil I suppose? Is that what exactly. we say? Really? Exactly. Yes, yeah. Earlier when I was talking about mushrooms, um, I think you made some brief remark about how, yeah, that's just one little bit of whatever the fungus is, is it fair to say that, is it a bit like the genitals of the fungus sort of poking up out of the ground well, or the, the larger body is underground? <laughs> is it fair to say that? Absolutely. I think of it as the organ of the right. organism and the genitals, you're, you're absolutely right. So it's a bit like in an animal, the reproductive part is the genitals and a plant, the reproductive part is the flower. So in a fungus, the reproductive part is the sporing body or the sporophore, the mushroom or the other reproductive structure. So when we see that little mushroom or other structure above the the earth or coming out of the tree, oftentimes the actual mycelium, the organism itself, that growing feeding part of the organism, 
organism can be vast. I mean, perhaps it might only be as big as your hand or big as a book or as big as a room, but other times we know there are some fungi that can be thousands of hectares big. So that's quite astonishing. So, so this is like a network of roots, is it? A network of fungal roots of a kind? It's a bit like that, exactly, yeah. So they, they're different to roots in that they can actually both fork and fuse. And so think of it like a tapestry, this branching, fusing tapestry that grows outwards looking for food, so looking for organic matter, buried sticks and branches and leaves and other organic matter, which is what the fungus feeds on. It feels around in the soil looking for that food. And so long as no one actually comes along and disturbs that soil by ploughing it or digging it up or building a road over the top of it or burning it or throwing chemical on it, so long as that food source is still there, Technically, the fungus can keep growing infinitely. There's no limit to how far it can grow, how big it can get, how old it can live. But there's very few places in the world where the soils are undisturbed. If you think about how much land is under agriculture, we have tilling that constantly breaks up that fungal mycelial network. We have so much land that's been covered in concrete, so the fungus can't actually break through that concrete. So there's not many places left in the world where that fungus can continue to feed, find organic matter without being disturbed in some way. You see, you're blowing my mind here again, because I I, (laughs) I just imagined that things like twigs were disintegrated by bacteria or something like that. But you're saying it's actually often mycelium. It's a, a fungus that's often eating and breaking down twigs and bits of wood in the forest floor? You're spot on, but it's the bacteria too. So that's those three groups of organisms that will break it down. The bacteria, the invertebrates doing it mechanically, but only the fungi can break down lignin. So they do it chemically through secreting these chemicals known as enzymes, whereas the invertebrates are breaking it down mechanically by biting it into smaller pieces. And bacteria are involved as well. So all these three different groups are are involved, but we've never really, I think, quite appreciated fungi as the great recyclers. So in school, perhaps you learn about, you know, plants as being producers, animals as consumers, but we often forget the third part of that, the fungi as the great recyclers, breaking it down, unlocking those nutrients, making them available to plants and other animals and continuing that cycle of life as the recyclers. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. It's funny in our culture that Fungi, like mushrooms and the like, are seen as either kind of weird, delightful and sinister at the same time. Do you think this is reason why this is a life form that's often overlooked? Like, I'm saying you're the first person I've ever spoken to on this subject over however many years of doing this program, Alison. It's really interesting, as you say, these are the qualities that make them so compelling, I think, the fact that they can be hallucinogenic, that they can be deadly toxic. And I think the fact that they're so ephemeral. So you you walk out on the lawn that you've perfectly manicured the day before, and then suddenly there's this whole ring of mushrooms that seemingly have popped up inexplicably overnight. And I think for centuries we couldn't explain what they were doing. We weren't aware that they were just the reproductive structure. We weren't conscious that there was this actual organism under the soil. So all these amazing mythologies arose across the centuries, across cultures to try and explain them. And often they were associated with things like the supernatural or with the workings of witches or other unseen organisms. And I think as humans, we don't like uncertainty. <laughs> like we, we like to be able to predict things and work out what something's doing there and how they got there. So I think this inexplicable nature of them and the fact that they did appear not just as mushrooms but as strange starfish-shaped things that had very odd smells and odours and textures and things. I think they were so peculiar. They weren't predictable. We couldn't explain what they were doing. So I think particularly in English-speaking cultures, it caused a lot of alarm and a lot of fear and we really weren't sure about them. And they've been maligned a lot throughout throughout history, but particularly in English-speaking cultures. And you'll notice there's a lot of very negative fungi around fungi within the English language. There is? Yeah, indeed. I mean, if you've ever popped a word, try popping in the word fungus into an online thesaurus and you'll be astonished what comes up. You'll get words like 
blight, disease, blot on the landscape, canker, illness. I mean, there's no word that says, no synonym that says fundamentally important organism that hangs together pretty much every terrestrial ecosystem on the planet. Yes. <laughs> you, you say they're kind of like a scaffold, they act like a scaffold of the forest. We were speaking before of mycelium, the, the, the tendril root-like systems that sit, uh, that, that are the larger part of most fungi on, on the planet. You, you say that they exist very often, not always, but very often symbiotically with plants. Tell me how they do that underground. That's right. So the actual mycelium, the fungus organism itself, exists like this scaffold or tapestry or architecture within the soil that holds the soil particles apart, aerates the soil, makes it inhabitable to other organisms like all those invertebrates we talked about earlier, allows water to gently filtrate through the soil. So it puts this wonderful architecture and scaffold in the soil and makes it biological or inhabitable. But also many fungi form relationships with plants. In fact, here in Australia, probably over 90% of plants, so certainly every single eucalypt, a lot of our introduced trees, such as conifers and broadleaf European trees, but certainly every orchid, many grasses, many shrubs, they form these mutually beneficial symbioses or relationships with fungi. And how this actually works is that the fungus mycelium forms a sheath around the tiny rootlets, the very small roots that come off the end of the larger roots of trees. They form this sheath around the plant root and extend out the root system. And because the mycelium is much, much finer than even the finest root, they can penetrate all those interstitial spaces, all those tiny gaps between the particles of soil and sand and access water and access nutrients that the plant can't access on its own. And because the fungus secretes enzymes, if that fungus encounters a bit of buried wood, they can actually break that organic matter down, extract the nutrients and send the nutrients and the water back to the plant. And in doing this, they're actually massively increasing the absorbable surface area of the plant. So the plant gets this wonderful benefit and in return, it gives the fungus a lovely feed of sugars that it produces through photosynthesis. So we, we recognise this as a, a two-way mutually beneficial relationship or what we call a, a mycorrhizal symbiosis. Myco meaning fungus, rhizal meaning root, symbiosis meaning an alliance. It's so close, it sounds intimate. It, it, there's a kind of a, a, a genuine intimacy there, though, if they're, if they're working hand in glove like that, so to speak. Absolutely. And there's, there's many different types of mycorrhizas, as we call this union. There's some that are just forming with, with orchids. There's others that form with heath-type plants. There's others that form with woody trees. And then there's those that form with some of our crop species, grasses, things like that. And it's incredibly intimate. And, for example, they, these, they can't live on their own. So you might have seen, for example, the classic fairy tale mushroom, the red one with the white spots that's in all mm. the... Alice in Wonderland, that one is an introduced species in Australia and it forms that relationship, for example, with pine trees that we see in, in pine plantations but also with other broadleaf trees such as birch or oak. It's actually also now forming relationships with some of our native trees but neither can exist on its own. Like That fungus can't actually live without the tree. It has to live in association with those tree species. So it's a very intimate, mutually beneficial relationship. Then there are the parasitic forms of fungi and you know, people at the moment are really aware of that because of the HBO series The Last of Us. There Indeed. is, before we get to the cordyceps one, or maybe this is a cordyceps one as well, there is a certain kind of fungi you say that preys on caterpillars. Tell me how you encountered this one day in the Tarkine Forest in Tasmania. They're not your typical mushroom-shaped, recognisable sporing body. It's not that we've talked you know, about the mushrooms that we very readily recognise, but this one looks just like a stick. In fact, it wasn't until I actually felt it that I recognised the texture is different to wood. There's what was spongier, was it, or, or, or just different? It's still quite hard, but the surface was very slightly pimpled. There was something very different to wood, and it's, it's still hard. I mean, many fungi are spongy or softer, as you suggest, but there was something about it I thought, no, nah, it looks just like a stick, but there's something that's giving this right, away. And it was just poking out of the forest floor, was it? Just poking out of the forest floor. It's only perhaps five or six centimetres tall, not very large at all. But And then I looked, and there were several similar-looking sticks around me, and that's when I realised, oh, I don't think it's just a stick or a bit of bracken frond poking up at something else and I very gently took out my pocket knife and just excavated around it and sure enough beneath it was a mummified grub or caterpillar of a moth larva and this particular type of fungi they actually feed on different invertebrate species so some feed on caterpillars others on ants others on other arthropods such as scorpions or 
millipedes or something like that. So every single insect genus or arthropod genus actually has a different fungus that preys upon it. So, Alison, I, I'm, I'm, I, this is childish, I know, but I'm kind of into the <laughs> horror story of this. Um, tell me, do we know how that fungus uh, or the spore of the fungus gets inside the caterpillar? Just eats it or something, does it? What do we know about we that? We think probably what's happening is that caterpillar, it's at that lovely phase of its life where it's just basically having to feed. It's asleep <laughs> in its little silken <laughs> lined. Looking forward to becoming a beautiful butterfly one exactly. day, perhaps, or something. Yes. That's right, it's dreaming mm. of this aerial phase mm. where all it has to do is mate and fly around. I mean, what a great part of its life. But this part under the soil, all it does is really eat and sleep. It's a pretty pretty good lifestyle. But they come out at night out of their little silken shafts and they graze around in the leaf litter. And probably what happens is that it simply consumes a fungus spore. These are invisible. They're absolutely microscopic. These tiny spores, perhaps on a piece of grass, it consumes it. And, and what happens when it gets inside the, the, the caterpillar's body? Well, the spore ends up in the in the gut cavity of mm-hmm. the caterpillar. Yes. And what happens is it finds itself a lovely ready-made set of nutrients there of other organic matter that the caterpillar has ingested. And the spore germinates, perfect habitat for it to germinate. It consumes the stomach contents mm-hmm. of the caterpillar. But guess what? It's still hungry. <laughs> so then what it does, once it's consumed the gut contents, it actually consumes the caterpillar from inside out. Oh, so my it, God. Kills it in the process, completely consumes the caterpillar. It forms almost like this mummified-looking caterpillar. It's all mycelium now, so it's all fungal rather than caterpillar, but it assumes the shape of the caterpillar, and then the fungus decides it wants to reproduce, and it shoots out its sporing body, out through the head of the caterpillar, pokes up above the soil, releases its spores, and that great cycle begins again. So God, it's that's a, so a, opportunistic. <laughs> it's just incredible. So there's this little caterpillar that consumes this thing, the thing eats its insides, turns it in, essentially into a fungus. And, and and can you still see the shape of the little caterpillar once you pull it out can. of the ground? You can. So you see those classic segments that you'll see on you know on a grub. Think of a caterpillar, it's actually segmented. So you can still see that form. But now it's just a full wad of mycelium. It's all fungal at this point. And I mean, you can see why this was so inspiring for the series you mentioned. Like it was just, it's such a great story. Like it's, it's an incredible thing. And I think there was a great clip as part of one of David Attenborough's series where there's about three or four minutes where they scan around the forest floor in the Amazon and there's all these different types of cordyceps fungi. There's one on a moth and another one on a stick insect and, and one on a spider and one on a centipede. And they have all these different forms. Some form just like a Stick, but others form like a mace or a, you know, like a goblet or all these different typed sporing bodies, different shapes and forms. But it's what he says at the end that's so critical, what David Attenborough says at the end of the segment, and that is that these crazy cordyceps fungi, what they're doing, they're not just inspiring the, the zombie <laughs> aficionati, they're actually keeping the forest in check. They're stopping anyone invertebrate genus from actually dominating. Sometimes forest conditions change and a particular wasp or a particular ant can end up dominating and get out of kilter and the forest ecosystem can get out of whack. But these cordyceps fungi basically regulate invertebrate populations in forests. So they have a very, very important ecological role. I know. And of course, anything that operates like that in a stable ecology is going to have a, have a reason for what it does and it must must be there. And it's very, very foolish and human to project <laughs> concepts of evil onto it. Nonetheless, I want to bring up the, the cordyceps uh, fungus that is, is able to infect an ant and assume the controls of the ants, so to speak. What do you know about that? Yeah, so there's various people researching this one and I think Attenborough says controls its mind. I'm still thinking, I'm still wondering, not that I would ever contradict David Attenborough. I'm still wondering whether a fungus has a mind per se, but certainly they control the movements of the ant and what happens when this ant becomes infected. We think that the fungus somehow controls the ant to go to a higher vantage point for the fungus. So the ant crawls up a blade of grass or up a tree, gets to a higher vantage point, and when the fungus somehow knows it's at a height, height, it actually controls the jaw muscles of the ant. The ant bites into the tree, and by now the, fung- the ant's actually dying, the fungus kills it, and then it can release its spores from this great vantage point of having height. Because if you're a fungus on the forest floor on the ground and you're relying just on wind, your spores are only going to disperse a metre or two at most. But if you've got this wonderful vantage Vantage point of being higher where more winds can disperse your spores. What a clever thing to do. What a clever fungus 
to take advantage of another organism to do some work for oh, it. It's extraordinary. It's absolutely astonishing. It's 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 uh, it's creepy as hell, but completely fascinating. <laughs> and and weirdly enough, I'm sort of I find it kind of fascinating that They're such compelling. a thing can exist. It's quite compelling. At the at the very very beginning of that series, The Last of Us, there's a, a fake talk show from the 1970s where they say, oh how how could we all come to an end? Oh, it could be a terrible virus or something. And then the scientist says, oh no no, the real the real threat is from some kind of mutated cordyceps. Um, we know that they can't infect humans because they don't infect warm-blooded creatures. Ha, 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 it could never infect humans, as they say. And then, of course, the premise of the sci-fi premise of the show is a form of cordyceps mutates, and it does do that. But this is true, essentially, though, nonetheless, that this, this fungus cannot infect or invade the body of a warm-blooded creature like a human or any other mammal, for that matter. Look, that's, that's certainly the explanation given to us by some mycologists, the scientists who study fungi, that we think they just cannot tolerate that temperature. But there are other fungi that do infect us. We know of the microfungi, things like yeasts that can cause all sorts of problems. But we're feeling pretty confident that the cordyceps aren't going to turn us into to zombies tomorrow. No. But, but isn't that what's wonderful about sci-fi, you know, not knowing quite which bit is the science bit and which bit's the fiction <laughs> bit? I mean, that's, that's why it's so titillating, is I'm not quite sure where the science ends and the fiction starts. That's the exciting bit. I think. Nonetheless, you say that perhaps the strangest fungus you've ever encountered is the lobster mushroom. Tell me where you saw that and, and how that works. Oh, look, that was in the wonderful Pacific Northwest of the, the Cascade Ranges of the Pacific Northwest of America. And, and I'd never encountered them before. We call particular fungi parasitize or inhabit different organisms. There's some fungi that parasitize trees. We see the bracket fungi coming off trees. There's the cordyceps we just talked about that parasitize insects. But then there's those what we call mycoparasites, fungi that parasitize other fungi. And this particular one, known as hypermyces or the lobster fungus, it's very, very clever because what it does is it takes advantage of the mushroom structure of another fungus to actually inhabit it and use the space that it's already created to release its own spores. And what happens in this process is it actually changes the chemical structure of the mushroom, which this particular mushroom, it's interesting, it has compounds called terpenoids that make it very bitter. So if you were to eat this mushroom, it's not necessarily toxic, but it's so bitter as to be unpalatable. And in this process of this fungus parasitizing it, what actually happens is the terpenoids disappear somehow, the chemical structure changes, and it increases the palatability to humans. But it is the most bizarre-looking thing, Richard. It actually looks like a mushroom wearing a high-vis vest. <laughs> so, really? High-vis orange. Yeah, they're just stunning. It's the most astonishing colour, and you can see why it's called a lobster mushroom because it's that colour of a boiled lobster, that amazing orange coloration and I'd never seen anything like it before. Pretty much just forms a covering, like a sheath, like a, we sometimes call these resupinate fungi or corticioid fungi. Don't worry about the names, but they just form like a, a covering. Think of like how a mould forms a covering on an orange or a peach or something. It just forms this very thin sheath across it. So it basically forms a sheath over this mushroom-shaped mushroom and covers its gills, its lamellae, covers them so it can't produce its spores, the original mushroom. So it's like it's it been releases... dipped in orange wax or something, is it? Exactly. It looks a bit like that. Exactly. Yeah, indeed. Then there are the things that are known as ghost mushrooms, ghost fungis. There is some bioluminescence in these, in these mushrooms. Tell me how you came upon a cluster of these mushrooms in Western Australia. Oh, look, they're just astonishing. I was actually on the beach just... I mean, there's so few places in the world you go to these days where there's no light. There's no light at all. And this is what's so wonderful about being in Australia. I love being in Europe as well, but what I love about Australia, there are still dark places. And so here I was on the beach just watching the moon rise, giving me the tiniest bit of light. And then I thought, oh, time to head back to camp. So I head back through the tea tree, feeling my way, couldn't see a thing, feeling my way with my feet, tripped over something, probably the root of a tree. And as I was lying there on the ground from this new vantage point, I saw something glowing beneath the tea tree. And I thought, my eyes playing tricks on me? And I looked up and of course, there wasn't really much moon. I just let my eyes adjust a little more and I realised they were ghost fungi growing at the base of what I think was perhaps a tea tree. There's lovely overlapping lobes of these big clusters of ghost fungi, not quite the size of dinner plates but not far off and so I crawled up to them and if you let your eyes adjust long enough, they give this very faint green glow and we don't really know why. We're not sure why they glow. Ooh. There's no... 
So they have no. they have a bioluminescence. Is it like they I want do. same kind of uh, same kind of agent that makes them bioluminescent as like some, it does for some sea creatures? Well, it's a similar process, but different chemicals are involved. So we've known about bioluminescing sea creatures since early Greek times, since Aristotle. We've known about that for a long, long time. But the chemicals in the process in fungi are different. And we still don't know why. Like it was it was presumed that perhaps they're trying to attract a nocturnal vector, like some kind of insect or bat or something that can help it spread its spores. But there have been some studies done with luminescent mushrooms and it seems that they're not attracting any more insects or nocturnal animals than other fungi that don't glow. So we don't really know why. And the rather, I guess, unsexy scientific answer is that it's simply what we call the secondary metabolites, which means it's it's simply a byproduct of some other chemical reaction. But I had a five-year-old friend who informed me it was nothing to do with that, that they glow to help wombats find their way through the forest at night. So I'll stick with that theory. Has a little kid told you that? I'm sure. Was Indeed. It? Oh, that's lovely. And what do Indeed. they glow like? Is it really, is it, it's quite a soft glow, is it? It is a soft glow. And, and I photographed them quite a lot. And because I photographed them just from the light emitted from the fungus, so with no other light source, no flash or anything, what actually happens when we photograph them, it's a very long exposure. The lens might be open for two or three minutes. And so that green coloration intensifies in the photograph. But it's usually quite a very soft green glow and what's interesting over in near Mount Gambit a lot of, lot of pine plantations over there and you often find them growing in pine plantations and I think that forestry South Australia might have set up what could be our first example of mycotourism, fungus tourism in Australia <laughs> and they've created something called Ghost Mushroom Lane and so you can go down there through the pine forests at night and see all these glowing trees that of course are, have the fungus around the bases of them emitting that glow so I think it's a pretty spectacular thing to witness. I suppose we know now that they're, they're, the glow is the, some kind of lovely biochemical uh, phenomenon but in the past would that glowing, the green glow of these ghost mushrooms be seen as sinister, perhaps? I think so. I think so. And if you look back in some of the early settlers' diaries, there are actually some records in Western Australia of drovers who camped with various different Aboriginal people who were a little bit uncertain about these fungi and asked to not actually camp near them. There was some fear among some Aboriginal groups who thought perhaps they could have been spirit ancestors. So I think... Things we can't explain, you know, why is it glowing? What's it doing? Is it, is it going to harm us in some way? And I think many cultures, not just here in Australia, but other other Indigenous cultures elsewhere in the world, they've also had all sorts of ways to try and explain what this glowing is about. And there's often been a lot of fear around them. It seems from reading your book, Alison, that uh, you've gained a lot of pleasure and insight over the years by going out into the wilderness with uh, some Aboriginal people, some elders who know the law of certain kinds of fungi and, of course, have been living with it and been able to observe it for you know since the year dot for tens of thousands of years. What kind of things have you learned for, and experiences you've had, have you had from being present on some of those foraging missions? Oh, look, I've had the great privilege, as you say, Richard, to work with various different Aboriginal groups. And what's been so fantastic is just to get their take on, on what fungi are doing and how they've been used traditionally. I mean, certainly we know that various different groups, such as the Wiradjuri or the Jajawarong or the Yongu or the Yorta Yorta up on the wonderful Murray River, they've used fungi for possibly, could be thousands, even tens of thousands of years, not just as food, but also medicinally and also for body decoration for, and for other purposes as well. And I think up on the Dungala, the mighty Murray River, I think the project that various Yorta Yorta aunties are getting running is possibly the first project in Australia by First Nations people actually looking at traditional knowledge of fungi. And so we wandered along the river, we found some puffballs, we also found some digging, some where something perhaps like a possum or some other digging mammal had dug up truffle fungi. We know various types of animals dig up truffle fungi. But unfortunately, through, as they said themselves, a lot of that knowledge has been lost when they're not permitted to speak their own languages or do their dances where that knowledge was transferred. A lot of that knowledge has been lost. So these aunties are working to try and retrieve what fragments are there to try to put the puzzle back together again. So it's been an incredible privilege and just loads of fun. <laughs> we just had so much fun. I mean, this is pretty dry country a lot of the time. So 
probably, you know, a lot of the fungi in that area are actually a truffle fungi, the fungi that produce their, their sporing bodies underground. So we spent a lot of time digging, crawling around in the dirt, looking for various species of fungi. So sharing knowledge, but yeah, a lot of that knowledge has gone. I think it's probably really places like up in, say, for example, in East Arnhem Land, where there's been, you know, if you think historically, there was three attempts, European attempts to settle the north of Australia and and all of those failed. So pretty much that could be one of the places where Aboriginal people have been continuously on country for tens of thousands of years. And I think perhaps that's where we could have some of the the most knowledge about the different Aboriginal uses of fungi anywhere in Australia. The thing I've really learned from your book is that fungi are very often the underground architecture that can hold a whole forest together. Is this a lesson that applies to the backyard as well? Or is this is that such an artificial construct, the gar- backyard garden, that there's nothing really to be said about the role of fungi in that? No, there absolutely is. And I think backyard gardens are changing. Many people now are trying to bring in native species. They're recognising that by leaf blowing every last litter away or raking or burning every leaf, they're actually losing all of that moisture that that organic matter holds in the ground. They're losing the invertebrates, they're losing the fungi. So I think fungi are incredibly important in backyards and the more organic matter we retain and the less we disturb it, the less we compress the soil or overwater it or use chemicals, the more fungi we encourage in our gardens and the more fungi, the more processes, the more transporting of nutrients to plants. I mean, the more fungi we can actually get, the greater the diversity, the greater diversity processes that build the resilience and robustness of every single plant in the garden. So I think thinking is changing at quite a rapid rate. I think ideas about no-dig gardens and no-till agriculture and permaculture and all these different approaches are very much about trying to retain that fungal network within soils. Alice, I'm really struck by the beauty of and the weirdness of those photos you've taken and videos you've <laughs> taken over the years that are on your, your wonderful website. It is so, so wonderful, lovely to see the sciences so deeply engaged symbiotically, if you like, with the arts in this in this case. Do you think that's a meaningful distinction, the distinction that we have in universities and elsewhere and in common language and in schools between the sciences and the arts? Look, I think really it's, it's very recent. I don't think they were ever separated perhaps until, I don't know, the last hundred years or something. I mean, if you think back to those early naturalists. They, they were also artists. They mm. had to draw what they saw, whether it was out in the bush or through the microscope. I mean, I think the old notion of the polymath who was the scientist and the philosopher and the artist, I think that was really the, how traditionally we understood nature. And I think it's really only in, in more recent times that we siloed off. I mean, I'm seeing a lot now, for example, in conservation that we bring in the artists to show us, to, to depict what's out there rather than just having the data from scientists. I mean, it's really hard to inspire the general public to get interested in an endangered species if we've just got an algorithm or a species list or a DNA sequence. It's up to the artist to reflect and to transfer it to show us that absolute exquisite beauty or the aesthetics, and it's an unusual. I mean, we're so used to the beauty of, of flowers or beautiful birds, and I think fungi, even if it's a, a more bizarre beauty, I think it's shifting. I think they're shifting our notion of what, what beauty and what aesthetics are. Like, the bizarreness is the time. beauty. That's the key to it, you know, I think. I think so mm. too, Richard. This idea of, for example, flagship species where we have a very charismatic, you know, think of things worldwide like polar bears or beautiful orchids and often they're stunningly beautiful. But I think it's the unusualness and the the bizarreness and how the strangeness, the peculiar forms of fungi that makes them so compelling. Indeed. Who do you want to chat with at the party, the supermodel or the really interesting <laughs> goth in the corner? <laughs> I mean, exactly. <laughs> both, both, for both. sure. Oh, no, well, yeah. <laughs> Alison, it's been fascinating speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time and interest. And I hope you've been thoroughly fungally hooked, Richard. I have been totally fungally hooked. <laughs> and I'll have to explain carefully what that means to my wife when I get home. <laughs> Alison, thank you so much. Alison Puglio's book is called Underground Lovers, Encounters with Fungi. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au/conversations.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.